Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me for the next episode in our year-end toolkit series, a series of episodes designed to help you through the year-end closing process. Today's episode is a special shout out to the IFRS reporters in the audience. We'll layer IFRS considerations on top of many of the hot button topics that we've been discussing. Think Russia, Ukraine, inflation, and other key areas of impact driven by today's current environment. We'll also be looking ahead to what's next in terms of developments in the OECD Pillar 2 Global Minimum Tax, as well as the ISB's upcoming agenda for the near term. And even if you're not an IFRS reporter, it may be helpful to understand some of these issues in the context of international reporting. I think you almost need to take a step back and say, the things that weren't expected as business as usual, have I got a process that makes sure that I thought about them in terms of the financial reporting impact? Clearly, you're managing the business. It's just, have you built some of that in to make sure that you actually provide some of that information from a financial reporting perspective? That was my guest, Gary Berkowitz, a topic team leader in PwC's Global Accounting Consulting Group. Gary's a repeat guest of the podcast, and as you'll hear, he brings a wealth of experience and insight to this conversation. With that, let's get started. So Gary, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on. So nice to have a chance to chat with you in person. And definitely a lot to talk about both as we look back to 2022, but also looking ahead to 2023. And always interesting to hear the IFRS perspective. So maybe just to start things off, I think something that's top of mind from everyone's perspective as they think about reporting, as well as perhaps their personal finances, would be inflation. So what's top of mind for you on that? Thanks, Heather, and uh, thanks for having me back, and all the best for 2023 to you and all of our listeners as well. Um, So yeah, so um, a lot of things happened in 2022, and as you say, rising inflation was one of them. So from a financial reporting perspective, I guess, there's some key things that folks should probably be thinking about. Now, some of these will be, you know, the the expected uh, the expected ones. So, you know, you need to think about how this is going to affect your expected credit losses. So, our IFRS nine standard, it might have an impact on your fair value. So, any anything that touches IFRS thirteen, which is the standard on on fair value, you might have to think about in the context of impairments, because obviously it'll affect your discount rates. But at the same time, it might also affect your nominal cash flows. So you also, I guess, need to ask yourself, am I doing my, my impairment testing on a real on a real basis or a nominal basis? Um, your provisions, your IS-37, your provisions, because obviously, again, expected cash flows are going up, but so would, in theory, the discount rate because the risk-free rate's going up as well. So again, question of how you're discounting on a nominal or a real rate, and it might, might have an impact, but the net number you get should still be the same. And again, taxes as well, you know, again, both in terms of potential recovery now because you might be able to recover more deferred tax assets or tax loss carry forwards because you're going to get in nominal terms bigger cash flows but again you might be in a worse position because of inflation so you've got to think about that and obviously and and i might sound like a stack record as you go along but disclosures so everything that comes along with us i think maybe more than ever it's the year of make sure you are clear on what's going on because i think a lot of investors and users are going to be expecting a company to be clear around not just the numbers, but how that all interacts with what's in the front half of your report or other information, as well as more broadly what investors are thinking of. 
So Gary, are you from a practical point of view then starting to see more questions on some of these topics or because inflation is almost more from a calculation point of view and not necessarily a technical point of view, that's not translating necessarily into more questions? Yeah, I think I think inflation is an interesting one here because it's almost, I wouldn't say it's like a sleeper issue, but you know, you, it kind of sneaks up on you mm-hmm. because it's it's kind of like you you think about, I've always been doing an impairment test. So, you know, why should inflation really make a difference to the way I do the impairment test? But then you you got to say to yourself, well, because the risk-free rate is now going up because mm-hmm. of inflation, that might impact your WAC. And then some people are saying, yeah, well, it, it may impact the discount rate or the WAC, but I think it's only temporary because inflation is going to come down. So then people start thinking, should I start making adjustments for that? So I think it's one of those ones where, again, on, on the face of it, you might think, is it really, it's just a change in expected cash flows and the mm-hmm. discount rate will cover for that. But there's there's some nuanced issues that I think people probably need to, to have a sit down and think about in detail around how, how is inflation, first of all, affecting my business? And then what accounting standards or areas in accounting might be impacted by that? And it's not always the common ones that you think of. So, so the ones I mentioned are maybe the ones that most people would have mm-hmm. naturally said, yeah, I kind of, I knew that. Yeah, thanks, Gary. I kind of knew that. But, but I think some of the maybe more nuanced ones might be, well, you might have in the past said items that I presented weren't, I could aggregate them because they weren't necessarily uh, material. And now as a result of inflation, your interest expense and your interest uh, income, like you're supposed to always show them gross, but sometimes people would show them there because they say, look, the numbers are not material. But now because of inflation, there may be aggregation that you thought was okay in the past that's no longer okay. So you may need to think about your chart of accounts and what your income statement looks like. And just because you accepted something in the past may not be okay because of inflation. So, uh, you know, another thing like historic trends, we've always done this from a process perspective mm-hmm. when we've looked at volatility or whatever, but as a result of inflation, maybe you can't rely on those historic trends anymore to, to think about the future because maybe the future isn't going to be, you know, the way that, that it was for the last five, 10 years. So this, this, as I was saying, like it's, it's difficult to, to kind of say, there's a, there's a, these are the, clearly the things that are going to affect you. So I think it's one of those ones you really need to think about. Yeah, well, I think definitely that advice of take a step back and think about your business and then how it translates. And I think the point you made, which is a good one, and it's interesting, I've had a lot of conversations about the impact of inflation, current environment, everything else. And and this point hasn't really come up, but there is sort of the more subtle, pervasive effects in the financial statements that people really need to pay attention to and that you don't want to figure out like the day before you're getting ready to file. So Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I I think another good rule of thumb would be what are you going to be telling investors? If an investor asked you, you know, inflation's going up, how's that impacting the business? What would you tell an investor? So in other words, what were you thinking about potentially from a planning or strategic perspective? How has it been impacting you? Has it been impacting your, your sales or real commercials? And then say, okay, now let's give it to the finance guys and say, what does that translate to in terms of what I need to think about from financial reporting? And it's not always the obvious things. So then let me ask a follow-up question on hyperinflationary economies, because something that I feel like doesn't really come up, then came up, then doesn't really come up again. And this is something we're expecting to see more of in 2023. And what are some sort of reminders there? Yeah, so obviously inflation is sometimes unfortunately a precursor to hyperinflation for some some jurisdictions and in in 2022 we had Turkey and Ethiopia going hyperinflationary from an accounting perspective um, which I guess is the least of folks worries when that's happening to a jurisdiction as I say which is which is unfortunate but I think funnily enough our, what we're thinking about for 2023 and we if, if we look at the things we've got on the watch list territories that might go hyperinflationary all of them 
are projected to still remain below 100%, our magical you know, percentage win from an accounting perspective, um, you know, more so under US GAAP, but even under IFRS, once you go over 100, it's a good chance you can apply yes. high inflation. None of them are projected to go over 100%. And the only one, with the exception, I'd say, of Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka was a really close call at the end of 2022. It was really close to 100, but I think their, their government uh, um, have instituted the right kind of economic response. And I think the, the expectation is that they will maybe go very close to 100, maybe just over it, but that they will start coming down shortly thereafter. And so we're hopeful that Sri Lanka will stay out of the hyperinflation bucket, but uh, we might need to watch that one a little bit more closely in 2023. So two follow-up questions then. Can you remind us what the trigger is to say it is hyperinflationary and that you have to change your accounting? Sure, sure. So it's when your cumulative inflation for the last three years breaches 100%. So you're kind of looking at what's happened in terms of the last three years of inflation. And the funny thing is it's, it's well, not funny. The the interesting thing is that it's normally, once it goes hyperinflationary, you know, you might be relatively high, but it happens sometimes very quickly. Um, whereas some, mostly it happens very quickly. Some have been like at the 80% mark for a while, but it can almost just be the last year that triggers it. And sometimes it's difficult because then, because it's a cumulative three-year um number you know once you start coming down it might be that you're dropping years that were good for the bad years even though the trend starts coming Mm -hmm. down you really need to watch what's happening and that might be what what happens with sri lanka and then i guess from a from a an IFRS perspective, we've got some other qualitative factors that we can look to, which is, you know, are people keeping things in hard currency rather than soft currency? Are things denominated in hard currency rather than soft currency? People prefer to hold hard assets rather than monetary assets. So we we kind of, I guess, have a little bit more flexibility yes. to look at things if it is those close calls under IFRS. But as I say, once your three-year cumulative inflation goes above 100, it's very likely you're going to be applying IS-29, our standard on hyperinflation. And then... When, like, do we see companies dropping off? It almost feels like once you're there, you stay there. But obviously, from the math you described, it, it eventually, in theory, if you stabilize your economy, it should go away. Yeah. So, and I mean, a lot of it is linked to what, what the, the real governmental or monetary policy is of a, of a country and how they're, how they're moving things forward. So, you know, I think Turkey, for example, as I said, unfortunately, is, is hyperinflationary. It was hyperinflationary a long time ago, came out of hyperinflation, and now, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's gone in. So I think some of it depends on what are the fundamentals that are going on in a country. Does there need to be a change in government? Does there need to be a change in monetary policy? Is it just unlucky, um, you know, based on some external event that may have happened? So, yes, country. You know, countries do come out of, of hyperinflation, but I think it, it, it's a gradual process because unfortunately, once you start hitting, you know, over 100% cumulative inflation for three years, something's gone fundamentally wrong. And when you're dealing mm-hmm. with a country, it's not like you just push a button and it goes back to back to normal. So it takes time. Yes, I guess one, I'll call it benefit, although it was a hard word to use in this context, is that this is at least one area where companies individually typically don't have to use judgment because there it is something that either happens or, or doesn't happen and each individual company is not having to decide for themselves. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think that the standard actually acknowledges that. It says, look, it's helpful if everyone starts applying it at the same time. So I think you know, there's a collective effort between, you know, the regulator, mm-hmm. the firms, the the entities in that in that jurisdiction to try and ensure that everyone kind of applies it at the same time. So yeah. 
All right. So let's turn our attention then to another topic that is one I've been spending a lot of time on and our podcast listeners will be well aware of, and that would be related to climate. And specifically, we know that IFRS doesn't explicitly address climate-related risks, but obviously principles that underlie various judgments and estimates in the preparation of financial statements often incorporate climate-related risks. And I think for all of us, maybe even if that's long been the case, people are paying a lot more attention attention now. And even an example, you know, I there's been huge, huge rainstorms in California, which is good news. And but everyone's talking about climate, climate. And, you know, I remember huge rainstorms in California <laughs> from like the 1990s. But in any event, I just think people th- are thinking about things differently now. So how does that translate into the financial statements? Yeah. And I, I probably echo what you're saying, Heather, which is it's the requirements have implicitly been in there forever. It's just, as you say, people are a lot more focused on it. And so I guess I want to make two points, which is, you know, the one is the the ISB issued some um, educational material a while back where they said, look, if you think about it from a financial reporting perspective, climate is already effectively baked into your assessment and a lot of standards. So if you think about it, when I do a, an IS 37 decommissioning provision, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got to think about, well, what's going to happen in 30 years time when I need to fix this thing? What will, what will the situation be from a climate perspective? Um, You know, if you think about residual values and PPE, it might be, well, this building, I used to think I was going to get it for 40 years, but as a result of climate change, I might need to change it or this machinery, I might need to change my manufacturing process a lot faster. So I think it's, just being similar to the discussion we actually just had on inflation, cognizant of what am I thinking about, first of all, from a business perspective when it comes to to climate and really focusing on it from a business perspective first. And then once you've been clear in your mind where the risks and the mitigation of those risks are from a business perspective, you kind of say to the finance guys, okay, so how does that translate into how I need to think about things in the financials? Which I guess leads me on to, as I said, there were two points. The second key thing, which is the messaging, because as mm-hmm. you've said, it's always been there, but people are a lot more focused on wanting to know how is climate affecting your business. And because there's nothing, as you say, in IFRS that specifically says, talk about your climate risks and here's the standard on it. I think it sits a- along a whole lot of standards and people are providing information elsewhere. And so I think there's there's two key points on my second point. The one is, even if you thought about climate and you thought, okay, I thought about the residual values of my assets or their useful lives, I don't think there's going to be an issue because management has gone through that analysis and they think it's going to be fine because of X. You might need to tell people that you've actually done it because if you remain silent, people are like, we want to understand what, what climate's going to, going to impact your business. Like, well, this is we think the effect we think it's going to have, which is minimal at this stage because of these assumptions we have made. Or if you think it is going to be significant, that will normally result in some change in the numbers, which automatically then requires you to put the disclosure. So I'd say even if you think it's not going to make an impact, sometimes it's important to get that messaging out there because that's information people will think is material. And the other key point is the consistency with other areas of of information that you provide in your corporate reporting Mm -hmm. or elsewhere. And I think we've said this is the biggest area where companies can potentially get into into hot water <laughs> it, you know if you say something like you say okay i'm going to have my accounts are going to be paris and my my operations are going to be paris aligned by a particular date you know people are expecting well what does that mean in terms of how you're thinking about your business now you might have in the background said well i think at this point in time that's not going to have an immediate impact on my business or from an IFRS perspective, it doesn't mean it's automatically generated liabilities because of the way the accounting requirements work. It's important to bridge that gap, mm-hmm. I think, for people reading the financial statements. Otherwise, they're saying, I don't understand how your rhetoric in your 
sustainability report or your, your front half of your financials aligns back to the numbers in the back. So I think a lot of it is the bridging. And again, I think that's talking between different departments in an organization who may be responsible for different areas of the business. Well, and we've definitely seen and talked about this on the podcast in the U.S. with the SEC asking specific questions about climate-related risk and the tie between what they're disclosing and you know in the financials and their filings and elsewhere. But I think the point you raised is an interesting one, is that often, let's say to your point that a company did say, okay, I'm going to be net zero by a particular date. Even with that commitment, though, sometimes you may not know what exactly that means for your equipment or your operations or otherwise. And I think unlike hyperinflation, where I said, oh, it's kind of like the one benefit is that someone else is telling you, this is really a case where companies really do have to exercise a lot of judgment. And again, as you're responding to those types of questions, any helpful sort of how, how would you think about that? I, I think. Well, as I say, I think I think the way I'd think about that is if you if it's a big deal in terms of the industry you're in and the business you're in, the starting point would be how how is management looking at the potential future of climate risks and how do you think that's going to affect your business? And hopefully if your governance structure is 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 is, is solid, you, you kind of have a, a team or someone who's looking at it. What does that mean from a business perspective? And then what does that mean from a financial perspective? And I think the the the, the key point is bridging the gap. And I think it's sometimes even if you've decided that you're going to be you know, Paris aligned or there's not going to be a major impact. It's it's giving that, I think, giving that comfort to investors because they're looking for that information and a standard doesn't require you to say, this is how you need to consider the things and tell me how you've considered them. And if it's material, if you don't think it's material, tell me this. And that's where I think it's almost like people need to fill in the blanks around what investors are looking for because there's no current financial reporting standard that tells you these are the requirements you need to provide. So like you said, from that consistency perspective, not everyone is going to do it the same way. So if you've made key judgments or estimates specifically around the con- in the context of climate, make sure you provide them somewhere in the financials where, it's, where someone can bridge that gap between what you're saying elsewhere and, and what, what's in your financial statements. I love that reminder. And I also think I'm often a fan of saying, read the guidance. And I do think this is a case where rereading that guidance that the, um, that the ISB put out can be helpful just to kind of trigger your thinking of all the different things that could be impacted. So that's, that's kind of a, a reminder here. Now, let me ask you another question then. It's more, current events related, and this is Russia, Ukraine, and uh, it's hard to believe it's been almost a year that that has been going on, but definitely still accounting impacts for companies with operations in that region or supply chain or otherwise. So what are some of the things companies should be thinking about from an accounting perspective? Yeah, and it's uh, I guess count- accounting in many cases the least least of people's problems there. But if we are going to going to think, yes, of- and thank you for making that point. I always yes, thank you for making that. No, point. no, that's fine, it's fine. But I guess from from an accounting perspective, it's quite interesting. You know, we we had COVID a while back. We've got Russia Ukraine now, and we just talked about inflation. And the thing is that it seems like we've said like oh. Black Swan event it can kind of seem to keep having these Black Swan events. Eventually, you're going to have to say, you know, uncertainty is business as usual mm-hmm. almost, and that's the point I was going to make. Which is the thing these all have in common is they increase the uncertainty around what's going to happen in the future. You know, in, in some cases it's pervasive, in some cases it's related to only if you operate geographically in a location. And I think you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, when uncertainty increases, it's the same accounting standards or the same judgments or estimates that you need to revise. So. 
expected credit losses, IFRS 9, um, your impairment assessments and potentially having to model various scenarios that now increase the uncertainty, which means that needs to be reflected somewhere where you make an estimate. Looking at IS 37 as well and any provisions or impairments you have, any onerous contracts you might have with customers, does it mean, again, that you're from a tax perspective, there's more uncertainty about recovering uh, tax loss mm. carry forward. So, you know, it a lot of them are the same are the same issues as 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 that'll be related to what we looked at from a COVID or an inflation perspective. But I guess if you're gonna ask, is there anything specific to Russia Ukraine that we've had a look at? I think the ones that potentially would spring to mind are um forex, because in many cases to try and get forex, this was a specific, you know, it was impossible to get mm-hmm. foreign currency markets kind of closed up. So again, using an average rate if you've got operations that you're consolidating that are in Ukraine Russia, it's quite difficult because normally, you know, our standard on Forex is as a proxy, you can use an average rate for your income statement rather than doing it on a transaction by transaction oh. basis. You might not be able to use yes. an average anymore if you've got operations there. So that's kind of more specific to this this scenario. Um, I think other questions we're getting are on, on non-current assets held for disposal or disposal groups or discontinued operations because a lot of people are exiting um, their operations either in, well, mostly in Russia, but sometimes Ukraine as well. And so again, the question of when can I show something? as a non-current asset held for sale or uh, a discontinued operation. Because remember, one of the criteria is needs to be available for sale in its current condition. And so a lot of the time it's like, I know management's made a call, they mm-hmm. want to exit, they want to do something, but you're not able to actually sell it in its current condition for various reasons. So key questions around kind of disposals. And the other one is, I guess, from a control perspective, many people, again, exiting their their associates or their their uh, subsidiaries in Russia and they want to basically message the market, we've made the strategic decision, we're out, you know, structuring around, I'm out, but I kind of have a call option potentially to come back in if things get better. And I think it's doing an assessment of, are you really out or have you still got the the ability to exercise control? So, you know, that's all about ability, not current current um, current power. So I think that's just some of some of the more specific Russia-Ukraine issues that we've we've been getting. Well, and Gary, I guess to the point you made, obviously, you know, there's the human aspect of this that continues. But it sounds like what you're saying is that counting didn't all happen sort of March, April timeframe, that there really are continuing accounting issues the longer that this goes on. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say I'd say to be fair, we got the majority of the accounting issues did come out earlier. I haven't had a, a many questions on it since then. So I think people kind of made their decisions strategically operation around what they were going to do. That generated most of the questions. Now, the issues probably haven't gone away, but it's the same issues now. It's not They're not new issues as a result of what's going on. So, All right. That's helpful. So then let's turn our attention to a topic that many of our listeners are going to think, oh, perfect chance to go do something else for a moment. But I believe with what you're going to say, they should not be. And that is IFRS 17. And For non-insurers, don't you not? <laughs> exactly. That, that's my exact point. So obviously, as of January 1, many companies are dealing with uh, the adoption of IFRS 17. But any sort of tips and tricks for non-insurers? Because clearly, if you are an insurer, this is not the podcast that you're going to get your yeah. uh, enough information about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If it is an insurer, I'm definitely the wrong guy to be to be speaking. So, as as a non insurance guy, um, I guess there's maybe two two key things. The, the one I would say is a is a good rule of thumb. I would say, and this is kind of someone someone explained this to me the other day. I thought it was quite good. If you enter into a, a, a contract, if you're trying to think, do I have an insurance contract? And this is not what the, the standard says. This is like I say, yeah, rule of thumb. Yeah, telling, plain te- English. Plain, yes. plain English. You know, a guy or girl on the street. I'd say, if on the day you enter into a contract with someone. 
there's a chance that you're not going to breach, the, you know, ignore you're going to breach the contract, but there's a chance you might end up actually making a net outflow or loss to this person on day one when you enter into it. You know, chances are it's a derivative or an insurance contract. So that's the thing. If you think that you have a contract like that, you may want to scratch your head and say, maybe mm. I need to do a little bit more digging into it. Now, that's a very shoot from the hip, you know, John Wayne cowboy kind of way of doing it. My second point I was going to make was, I think like any gap change project, you probably need to sit down and actually start out with a questionnaire and develop what question would you ask the business units where you have your contracts written? Because a lot of the time, if you're a non-insurer, you're like, I don't write insurance contracts. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the, that's the, the challenge is that it's it's agnostic to insurance companies. It's more around, have you taken on insurance risk? As I said, there's a chance that you, you're getting almost like a fixed fee and there's a chance that you might pay a variable amount out to someone and you end up losing money at the end of the day. So I think it's building a questionnaire, going through a process, sending it out to the BUs, seeing what comes back and actually getting comfortable that you've, you know, kicked the tires and made sure you don't have any of these sleeper insurance contracts lurking somewhere. Well, and I I think just in general, the reminder that IFRS 17 is not just for insurers. So it's probably the headline of all of this, because I do think people read the title and are happy. Oh, that's one I don't have to take a look at. And they've probably never even opened it. And obviously, as you said, that is not the case. And all of our listeners should at least be you know, kicking the tires on that. Yeah, one. and I mean, I mean, I think the thing is that there's some decent scope outs in IFRS 17 because I think they said, look, there's some things that will meet this definition we've written, but we really don't want you to apply this incredibly complex model. So if you think about a warranty, you know, a warranty is an insurance contract. You know, I get a fixed amount of cash mm-hmm. from you, and in the future, and that might be embedded in your in your sales contract or whatever. Now, luckily, there's a scope out for those types of transactions because they're in the scope of IFRS 15. But I mean, it might be, you know, a fixed fixed service plan. Like uh, you just pay me a fixed fee and I'll repair your car if it breaks down. You know, you don't intuitively think of that as an insurance contract. But if you go back to my definition, you know, you've got a fixed amount of cash and depending on what happens in the future, you might not breach the contract. But if you need to do more repairs than you estimated, you might end up making a loss on this on day one. It would have been an insurance contract. Now, again, there's certain kind of simplifications and scope outs you get, but I think that's the type of things that we don't automatically think this was an insurance contract, but you really need to, as I say, understand what might trigger it. And the way you do that is, in my mind, via a process or a questionnaire to kind of your business units. All right. Definitely a uh, sort of top 10 list for 2023 reminder. So then our next one, I also think is a bit of a sleeper issue, although one we've started talking about it actually in our year end toolkit series that we just finished. I did have Jen Spang on talking about taxes and specifically OECD pillar two, which is uh, related to global minimum tax. And she did touch on some of the IFRS implications, but I know there is more to it than that. So can you give our, our listeners a brief reminder of what that issue may be and then how they should be starting to think about it? Sure. And if I say anything different to what Jen said, <laughs> she's right and I'm wrong. Okay. So, um, but, but I think very briefly kind of pillar two is really about trying to ensure that every jurisdiction in the world, you can't move your operations there so that you pay effectively a lower rate of tax. So the idea is that regardless of where you're running your operations, you're going to pay a minimum of 15% on your operations in a particular jurisdiction. So if I run my operations out of jurisdiction X, they've got a zero statutory tax rate. And I think that's great. What Pillar 2 would say is, well, hang on a second. If another territory has adopted the Pillar 2 rules, they would say, let me look at all of your operations around the world And if any one of those jurisdictions on the whole is paying less than 15% tax, then some other jurisdiction around the world will be able to tax 
the difference between their statutory rate and 15%, which should hopefully over time drive local jurisdictions to say, well, I might as well charge 15%, otherwise someone else is going to charge the 15%. So that's kind of the idea behind OECD. Now, what that does from a financial perspective, financial reporting perspective, is it creates an absolute nightmare um, from a deferred tax perspective. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because if you think about it, you're like, well, that means in the future, am I going to have to pay more tax because this jurisdiction is at 0%, but I know someone else in the group is going to maybe have to pay more tax because their local tax authority might have implemented the pillar two rules. And so I think in response to that, folks may be aware that, you know, the ISB was made aware of this and they've, I think to their credit, they've responded very responsibly. I think they've said, look, IS-12 was never really, the IFR stand on taxes was never really written for this type of tax regime that looks cross-border and does Mm -hmm. a whole lot of complicated adjustments. And so an exposure draft has just come out um, it's got a very uh, a shorter exposure period because they know they need to implement this soon before territories start start doing this. And what it'll basically do if it if it comes through is it'll say that although pillar two taxes are in the scope of IS twelve, you don't have to recognise any deferred tax as a result of any implications that might be because of pillar two. You'll still obviously current tax when you start paying it. You'll need to disclose the amount that you're paying, but it's going to scope out any deferred tax considerations. So. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, Jen said this is like a temporary uh, exposure or, well, ultimately would be like a temporary standard. We've had this in the U.S. with the sunsetting of LIBOR. There is a standard that will sunset, but temporary standards are not something we see often. So what is what exactly yeah, do so, we mean so, by this? Yeah, so, so, so it's, it'll, it'll come out. And I think what the board has said is it'll, it'll stay in effect until the board decides it needs to go away or not. So so I think that the logic behind this is I think the board understands that it's it's going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, and the information that's going to come out might not be that helpful. But I think the idea is, as I said before, if local jurisdictions start actually implementing a local minimum of 15%, you might not actually need this exception over time. But I think because the board is moving so quickly, I think they've said, we might or might not leave it in place. What mm. we want to see is what's the informational value that comes out and is this really, does it make sense not to try and apply deferred tax accounting to these types of arrangements? So I think that's the reason why. But if I was a betting man, again, I would say this thing is going to be with us for a long period of time. So Well, it definitely seems like helpful guidance for companies that are trying, already dealing with all the other impacts from the Pillar 2 taxes. So let me ask a related question, and uh, this is going to expose potentially the fact I don't know that much about income tax accounting, particularly under IFRS. But there's been also in the U.S. a lot of attention paid to the fact that the FASB is going to be requiring additional disaggregation from a tax payment perspective, tax rate reconciliation perspective. Are we seeing any similar type of movement under IFRS? And this is where you could say, oh, it's already required, but I don't think so. No, no. Well, there's no current expectation that there's going to be more disclosure requirements on kind of your tax rate recon or the numbers that go into tax rate recon. I, I think this new exposure draft, if it is implemented, it will require entities to disclose separately the amount of tax they're paying under their local regimes and the amount that they're paying under Pillar 2, so I think, but that's just so that people know where are the low tax jurisdictions and what is the top up tax that's effectively being paid as a result of pillar two, as opposed to your jurisdictional tax. But other than that, there's no, there's no plans to, to expand the amount of tax disclosures. 
All right. That's very helpful and probably good news, at least for some of our listeners, although a lot of focus right now on tax transparency disclosures. So I guess potentially more to come. All right. So then, Gary, since we are sort of still in the year end time frame, any other key takeaways, either for year end or as you look ahead to the beginning of next year? I think I think a, a couple is just um, we've talked about quite a lot of issues that are creating uncertainty, as I mentioned before. And I think the 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 key takeaway I'd have is just take a step back because a lot of businesses, I know your ends are difficult to get all the numbers in and we've got a process in place to manage that. But that process is built for business as usual. And I think you almost need to take a step back and say the things that weren't expected as business as usual, have I got a process that makes sure that I thought about them in terms of the financial reporting impact? Clearly, you're managing the business. It's just, have you built some of that in to make sure that you actually provide some of that information from a financial reporting perspective? That would be my one key takeaway for this year end in terms of watch out for the things that you weren't expecting in 2022. All right, definitely, definitely good advice there. And then how about from a standard setting perspective? I asked you a specific question about taxes, but anything else that we're expecting to see uh, from the ISB in the upcoming year? Yeah, so actually taxes, so there's the two things. I think the one is standards that will become effective in 2023. And there is a, a an amendment to IS-12, the standard on taxes, and that's just if you've got equal and opposite deductible and um, taxable temporary differences. So our new LISA standard, now that you've got an asset and liability, you're going to book deferred tax in some cases um, on the temporary differences. So watch out for that one. That's applicable this year. And then there's a change to the way we think about judgments and estimates from an IFRS perspective. So I think this is a really good amendment. It helps people work out, is something a change in accounting policy or is it an update to estimates? I think it's an improvement on what we had before. So if you're thinking about that this year, definitely make sure you look at the updated guidance because it's changed. I think it's an improvement. And then from a standard setting perspective, obviously that's people have got bigger fish to fry. They're trying to close off your ends, but two that maybe spring to mind that you might want to think about. Um, the one is supplier financing. So this was a big deal. I'm sure you did several podcasts on this yes. <laughs> over the course of 2022. <laughs> so that, that, um, that exposure draft will be issued in 2023. And the reason I say it might be important is because it had such a big focus that people might want to early adopt some of the requirements in that, or at least think about them to avoid kind of challenges from, from auditors and regulators. And the other one that, that will be issued in 2023 is an, is an ED currently that the ISB is going to put out on lack of exchangeability. And again, the discussions are out on inflation and that mm-hmm. normally result in Forex issues. And this is to really try and help te- entities when they're in a jurisdiction where Forex starts drying up. How do you work out what the exchange rate should be? And we've had massive issues in the past trying to do that. And this is supposed to ease that. And so, as I say, although it's only going to be um, issued in 2023, effective much later, people might want to use it if they're unfortunately working or operating in a jurisdiction that has uh, Forex that starts drying up. So some helpful stuff. All right, definitely something to watch out for. So then final question for you, Gary, and I was thinking about this as you were talking that in your role, so the issues we're talking about are all sort of current type of issues, current events type of thing. And in your role, you're often the backstop for the sort of final resolution of these issues. So at that moment when people are probably most stressed, it's the most difficult to deal deal with these issues. So having had all that experience, what advice would you give for our listeners as they are dealing with different types of issues, any sort of tips or tricks that, that you would share from what you've been able to observe in your own experience? Sure, thank you. Well, on the one hand, that's easier than the question you asked me last time on baseball and I embarrassed myself, <laughs> so thank you. But on the other hand, this is, this is fraught with more danger depending on what I say. So I, I think... Um, um, the one thing I would say is sometimes, you know, my wife, bless her, she, she reminds me, you know, what we do is clearly important and we add value. 
But in many cases, no one's going to live or die depending on what we do. So sometimes I say, I've got an accounting emergency. And she says to me, you know, you're an accountant, you're not a brain surgeon. So I think sometimes, you know, not to take ourselves too seriously. Yes, I, good think reminder. I, I understand sometimes the issues are serious for people and they can get them stressed and, it, and, it, and it's important then. But I think sometimes just taking a step back and getting some perspective, you know, they're, they're numbers at the end of the day. So Yes, excellent answer. And you can thank your wife from the podcast <laughs> team that that is a, a good summary. And I think something that could apply to all of the things that we just talked about. Spot so, yes. Yeah. So, Gary, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.